Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is currently working at Sucker Punch Productions, but he's worked for a little studio called Naughty Dog. You might have heard of it, maybe. He's worked on franchises such as The Last of Us 2 and things such as Call of Duty. I'd like to welcome Tyvek Stallworth. How you doing, man? Doing good today. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good, man. I'm good. First question before we get into anything is, I, I got to know your workout regime. Gotcha. You know what you're doing, man, because you're a jack dude. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, I typically work out around like five to six times a week, and I have all of LA traffic to thank for that. Um, the story there is that um, I'm originally from the East Coast and uh, moved over here to the West Coast, and I was not expecting the traffic to be as bad as it was around LA. Mm. And so um, I would commute from Pasadena to Santa Monica when I used to work at Naughty Dog. Right. If I wanted to go around like the normal hours, like, you know, 8 a.m. in the morning where when everybody's going to work, it would take me almost an hour and a half to go just like 22 miles. That's insane. So what I did is that there was a gym at the bottom of the building. So I would wake up at like 4.50 on the dot every single day. Um, go to my work building early go to the gym get a good workout in maybe toss in the sauna if i was you know stressed out a little bit and then just walk up to my work building and you know practice my craft do some design work so that i can go from qa to designer eventually so that was my routine for like a year straight until i was able to actually make it into the, the design field wow so yeah. how long did it take you before you came to the realization that you should try and make the most of the the traffic situation like was that early on when you started yeah. realizing about the traffic where you're like ah oh, i gotta i gotta work out some way around this gotcha. i did it for a week and i was like i there has to be some other way <laughs> it feel it felt like absolute hell being stuck in traffic every day but i mean it's time for a podcast and everything but for like sure. when you're in the car you know, it drains you mentally because you have to worry about what is traffic doing? You know, what am I doing? Am I going to be liable for any damages that are about to happen if I crash? Stuff like that. So um, I did it for about a week and I was like, I cannot do this anymore. It's wasting so much time. So instead of that hour and a half time window that it would usually take me to get to work, I figured out that I can get to Santa Monica in about like 22, 25 minutes if I left around like 5.15 in the morning. So, so then what did what do some of your colleagues at Naughty Dog do then? How do they deal with the traffic? Oh, they just deal with it. <laughs> Real? Yeah. So um, an hour and a half is pretty, it's on the light side. Like some people that I was working with at Naughty Dog, especially in QA, said they had like a two and a half hour commute. Was that one way? That's one way. What? Yeah. And um, for QA, we weren't getting really, we weren't, weren't really getting paid that much. So, um, like you're burning all your money on fuel to get to work and go home from work. And so, um, it was just a, it was a big ordeal, man. But some people, they just kind of dealt with it. Like, okay, that's the time that I'm going to put on a podcast, put on some music and deal with it. And then, but me, I was like, I can't do this. So I'm going to figure out a better way. And, um, that kind of fell into place because I wanted to, work my way up to a designer anyways. And Naughty Dog had excellent documentation for how to use their systems and their tools. And I started to put together things in my mind and start working on stuff for like, I used to get done with the gym at like eight o'clock in the morning, maybe 7.30. And then I would just go up to the work building and then like two hours before work actually started, I would just work on design stuff. So That's... I just kind of filled in the gap. Wow, wow. So how long did it take before they noticed how much effort you were putting in and move you from QA into design. Gotcha. It was probably a little, a little under a year. So probably around like the, the 10 month to 11 month mark was when the consideration was like, okay, this guy really wants to get in. He's doing some effort. He's kind of helping us out. And um, I just kind of made an effort to put myself in front of the team and say, I've learned this stuff. I learned how the pipeline works between code, art, um, design, and, you know, I want to help you out. Like, I, my favorite game of all time for multiplayer was Factions Multiplayer. And mm. when I was in college, Aaron Daly, who's the lead multiplayer designer at Naughty Dog, he came to um, 
the college, um, SCAD College, or SCAD, which is Savannah College of Art and Design. And he gave a talk about factions multiplayer, the design behind that, how they got to it. And, um, you know, he brought my, my copy of The Last of Us there. He signed it and everything. And um, I was cool. like, one day I'm going to work there. So I had like this burning desire to just plug all that time into, you know, getting noticed. And um, I had this goal of like, I'm going to get to Naughty Dog within like five years. Like five years is going to be the mark that I was going to get there. And I was able to get there in like a month. I mean, a year and a month um, officially. Um, but um, it all started with just saying, hey, do you need help? Then I would make, you know, design tools to cut down the art pipeline from like three to four hours down to one hour. And then I would kind of start making like weapons and character mechanics on the side and be like, hey, check out this. What do you think about this? And, you know, some of those mechanics actually got into the game and were used widespread and people were like, yo, really dig this. I love this a lot. So I was making impacts and I was making plays while I was still in QA, um, trying to get into the designer spot. Nice. So um, it was kind of like the skill level matched the need to have me on the team. Um, the Last of Us 2, as it was wrapping up for single player, um, a lot of the team on multiplayer had to go over to help single player just because it was that much work. We had like every single empty space in the hallway was filled with a desk and a body in it. Like it was an incredible feat. We just needed people to do work. And um, so one day, um, Aaron Daly, he messaged me um, over, you know, the, the communication line that we had at Naughty Dog. And he was like, hey, you know, I want to offer you the position of designer. You know, you've been helping us out. You've been doing good work. We know that you understand the system. And then, you know, another designer who helped me get into Naughty Dog in the first place was like, this dude, like he has the passion to, you know, be brought over and, you know, do good work. So he reached out to me and I was like, yes, yes, yes. I couldn't take another day of writing a single, <laughs> uh, another bug in the system. And I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. My efforts have paid off in the long run. And, um, so I had the traditional like phone interview, the technical test and everything. And I was on the team within like a week after that. So what, when you first moved into des to design, do you remember the first thing that you tackled? Yes. Um, I can't really talk about it the too specifics. much in depth. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But essentially it was a mechanic that he wanted me to create. And it dealt with like putting animations together knowing the scripting language that they were using, which is called Lisp. If you haven't looked at Lisp, go look it up. It is the most archaic thing that you would ever see if you're used to any type of like standard programming. Um, instead of brackets, they use parentheses and it's called like a functional language. And it was the most obtuse scripting language that I've ever worked with in my life, but I got used to it and it was fun. But um, yeah, scripting, animation, I had to do like sound effects. I had to learn how to script over the network um, because, you know, now on a multiplayer team. So I was dealing with like server and clients and making sure the server managed stuff to check the state of whatever I was making. And it was just like a lot of stuff that I had learned on my own that came together. And I don't even think that there was not like any high expectations, but like I wanted to make like that strong first impression so i would sure. be in the office from like eight o'clock in the morning to you know nine o'clock at night really um oh yeah oh yeah i was i was hungry for it <laughs> so would you at least go out to eat yeah i would stop and eat that's oh, actually yeah. very on. very important <laughs> um in qa i would stop and i would chillax and i would talk to people amongst me because you know those are where your ideas are going to come from there's a they are going to give you inspiration to move forward and you know from my experience in quality assurance these people um that i work with they would be like yo you're doing cool stuff you know teach me how to do what you're doing and so like i started to pave the way for you know people in qa wanting to get into game design get into visual effects get into sound design get into dialogue stuff of that nature and so it was kind of like we all fed off of each other to inspire one another to you know put in that extra hour or two off the clock to learn design skills that actually helped us with our qa skills because once you start to learn the pipeline and the engine and how things are working you actually start to understand okay, this particular bug is happening because of this reason. I know it because I ran to this while I was doing, while I was learning the design and the pipeline of the actual game. 
So it was more of like a community effort of inspiration that kind of fueled myself along with, you know, my desire to actually get to that position. So it was super critical to build relationships so that, you know, we could all just support one another on the climb up. We're trying to get to where we, we wanted to go to. Mm. Design covers so many aspects, right? So, I mean, you've got what the actual design, then you've got the mechanics, you've got coding, you've got animation, you've got lighting and even sound effects. Cause I know mm. you're really into sound and music as well. Mm-hmm. But have you been able to somehow mesh all those effectively when you're working on something, or do you have to hone in on just one specific thing? My philosophy is hone in where needed, but keep the bigger picture in mind always. Right. So for me, I love the technical ability of whatever I'm creating. And I like to create it to a high fidelity so that we have good player feedback. It looks well, it reads well, and the player just knows what's going on and it looks badass, whatever. Um, So um, (laughs) there's a lot of elements that come into play bringing those all together. But the way that I view things is that I try to view things from, you know, an Eagle's perspective. So I always make sure to keep tabs on every single thing that happens when going into creating a certain mechanic so that sound design that's animation um could be visual effects um anything that needs to be brought together to create something i kind of make sure all that comes together in a cohesive manner but i always pretty much focus on one part of it which is the execution of the code the script and making sure that it's bug free it works um, and the player has the feedback and the reliability of the move that they're using. Mm. Makes sense. Mm. Makes sense. So what is it about Naughty Dog that's different from every other studio? I mean, they're considered one of the best. Mm-hmm. Is there something specific that they do, or is it just a combination of them being good at everything? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. It has to do with... I guess Naughty Dog has a good track record, so it's very prestigious. Right. People want to stand out, so they put in the extra effort to get noticed. And the other element would be their flat structure. So you don't have to report to a producer. There's really no producers at Naughty Dog. Okay. I I haven't been there for a while, so maybe there is now. But there's really no producers that you have to go to and say, okay, can I do this? It's pretty much if you want to do something, yeah, do it. You'll talk to, you know, two of the people in your pod, say, hey, I want to do this. Let's try it out. Take a little bit of time. If it works, cool. Put it in the game. If it doesn't work, okay. Let's, you know, put it back in the trash can and, you know, continue forward. So there's a lot of creativity that happens like that when you're trying to make a name for yourself and you have the freedom to do so. You don't have a rigid, a rigid structure of hierarchy where you're prevented from doing anything. So it's more the challenge of, should I do this or should I not? Am I going to waste my time? Is it worth it? But you have the creativity and the authority to pretty much create anything you want to. And I think that's what makes Naughty Dog so successful is that people just try different things and it doesn't take them long. So mix that with people just wanting to like stand out, get full time, because there is like contract work. Naughty Dog hires contract, and then if you do good on contract, then they they might, you know, bring you up the full time. So it's like a piranha pit of competition where one person is trying to outdo the other, but still, you know, collectively work together to create something beautiful. And I think all of those elements combined creates the high fidelity that Naughty Dog offers with their games. So is part of the reason you left just because of the traffic? Not the traffic. When I first got the design position, um, he did say, he was like, hey, I can't guarantee that this position is going to be, you know, something that can guarantee you into full time. Right. Um, so um, unfortunately, I was, um, I got extended, my contract got extended for, you know, a few more months, but they did not have the seat power to actually keep me on the team. Okay. And that's how you ended mm-hmm. up at Sucker Punch. I went from Naughty Dog to um, working at Highland Studios, working on Warzone. Oh, Call of Duty. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then you went on to Sucker Punch. And yeah. then I went on to Sucker Punch. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. how was that working on Call of Duty? Because when you talk about big franchises, that sits mm-hmm. right at the top. Gotcha. 
it was an experience. When I first got to um, High Moon Studios, they were actually just jumping over to Warzone. I think they had been working on Destiny 2, one of the expansion packs. And um, so my whole team, they had only been on Warzone for like a week before I actually got hired on. And right. so I was kind of learning with the team. But um, out of any of the companies that I worked worked for so far, one thing about Warzone is that it's a huge machine filled with just people who know how to create like good tools, um, good pipelines and getting things in the game fast because I mean, that's what you have to do. Like you have Warzone, you need seasonal content, you need new content all the time to fuel the player's investment in your game. So when I was working on Warzone, I was able to use the tools with no problem at all. Once I figured out where everything was, I was able to pretty much craft anything that I wanted within, you know, their limitations. And if I didn't have the ability to do so, then I could just be like, hey, you know, software engineer, let me talk to you. You know, what what do you think about this? Can you expose this from, for me from code so that I can do A, B, and C, and they would work with me. So it was very, they had the tools to really help the designers execute the ideas that they wanted to. Just because so Call of Duty is a huge franchise. So they, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, was there a specific thing that you were able to implement? Is something that you remember? Yeah, so um do you play a lot of wars on yourself? I've played a little bit. I haven't played the uh the new version, but I did play the the the, the version one, not version two. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. One of the more notable things that I worked on, um, there is a game mode called Clash. Right. Um and I was one of the two designers that actually worked on that. Um really? Yeah. So there was another designer. I'm not gonna I don't want to say his name in case he doesn't want to be mentioned, but um, <laughs> um, he was also from QA and he was also kind of like a mentor to me. So I learned a lot from him, but um, we both worked on that game mode and it was like highly successful to the point where people were like, where the hell is this game mode? When it got taken off of the, the weekly rotation, people were like begging for it back um, just because it was like a, it was like a 50 versus 50, um, you know, team death match where you just get to have fun. You don't have to worry about having one life. And it kind of replaced plunder um, in a sense, because, you know, people just want to go in, they want to level up their guns, they want to kill people, they don't really want to worry about an objective. And so Clash kind of hit that sweet spot. And we had like home bases on each side of the map that was of your team, vehicle spawned in that in your base to where you can like ride out with your comrades and just like events and everything like high value targets where people would get marked on each squad and you had to take them out or coordinate to take them out. It was just like a lot of fun. Um, so I worked on that game mode, and then for the next season, I worked on the um, the Nebula 5 bomb, if you've heard of that. Yep. Um, I worked on that solely um, with um, a visual effects artist and a software engineer that helped me get the tech to actually pull that off. But that's probably like my, mag my, magnus my magnum opus working at Warzone is that, because that was a huge nuke that covered like a half the map. And the amount of like technical ability and performance that I had to perform on that along with my team was like a big deal um, because a hundred people have to look at this one thing at the same time and the game can't crash. It can't dip in frames. And so that was like a huge thing to, be to get solid into the frame game. Rate. Yeah. Solid frame rate. Yeah. So um yeah, and then like the nebula rounds and the decontamination station that allows you to live out in the gas for a little bit without taking damage. I worked on that as well. So who comes up with these ideas for the different modes? Is this just like a big massive pitch meeting where everyone is on a Zoom call and somebody mm. throws out an idea and it's put on a whiteboard or something? How does it work? Usually, or from my experience, it's more the creative directors. They kind of get together and say, okay, well, we want to do this. You know, what is Warzone missing right now? What niche do we kind of want to fill? And like, generally, what sounds fun? So if, you know, we have, I think we narrowed it down to like three game modes, and then we would kind of like fastly prototype them, get them in game, see how it played. And if it wasn't working, we scrap it. Um, if you can, and that's like a skill that you need to like know in game design because it's going to save you so much time. It's like, this isn't fun. It's, it's a term like, you know, kill your baby. Don't be attached yeah. to it. And that is a skill all in and of itself to be like, listen, this isn't fun. Let's move on to something else. So our team was great at that. Like, okay, move on. 
new thing. Let's try it out. Okay, there's promise in this. Let's push a little bit further. Push a little bit further. How are we? Okay, we need to make one more push. One more push. Okay, this game mode is a success. Let's continue with this. So, so. what happens if you think it's fun, but then the rest of your team think it's trash? Then what? Then you're just like, ah, oh, majority rules, that's it? You have to convince the team that you can lead that game mode or whatever you're working on to success. One of the thing, one of the most valuable skills in video games in general is being able to do the work yourself so that you can get a proof of concept in somebody's hands that they can play. So there's no interpretation that has to be made. And that's how you do that. So um, if you have to put in the extra work, the LT, to make sure that you know, you have your game mode or whatever you're working on up to standard so others can see the vision, then that's what you need to do. But you can't make a game mode by saying, guys, it's going to be good in a month, I promise. You can't do that. People <laughs> want to see and be able to play what you're making on. You have to convince them. It's pretty much what you have to do. Yeah, because it always comes back to a prototype versus a pitch document, right? Because I've always thought prototyping is better as, as a way to showing someone as opposed to just mm -hmm. writing down, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For a pitch needs to be made. It needs to sound fun. And it needs to fit in a particular niche that isn't being met in the community right now. Or it's so fun that we want to include it in this pitch as well. So you can kind of like, once you start to go through pitch after pitch after pitch of game mode, game mechanics, systems, whatever, you start to realize what is fun. And from the games that you do play on the daily, you know, you can play like Super Mario Bros. And there could be a mechanic in Warzone that reminds you of Super Mario Bros. Um, and you're like, well, I want to take what's from Super Mario Bros. and put this in Warzone and spin it to where it fits the universe. Um, you'll start to do that a lot once you start to get acclimated to like thinking like, okay, this is the pitch. We can do this. We can do this. And we can do this. Okay, let's try it for these three things. Let's meet three, these three objectives try it out and then see if it's fun or not. Hmm. Um, so you just have to kind of know um, and that knowledge builds up over time of failed projects. Okay, this didn't work with this. This is similar to this and this didn't work in this circumstance. So most likely it's not gonna work in this circumstance either. Right. So you just have to kind of judge from your own experience. Hmm. So the, the, the Mario example that you use, was that just a hypothetical? You didn't actually get influence from Mario into Call of Duty. No, not specifically, <laughs> but subconsciously that can happen. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like for example, like Super Mario. Let's say you know we like the the high jump that he does. Then you can like subconsciously subconsciously be like, you know, what if what if there was something a power up that we could get that allows you to jump a little bit higher for a little bit. I see. Like you don't necessarily take that from Super Mario specifically, but your brain's like, yo, I love high jumps okay, Super Mario has a high jump that has a great feeling. Okay, let's use it in Warzone. But your mind doesn't really translate that that's where that comes from. But it's just the collective experience that you've built up over time. Uh, speaking of Mario, I know he's your favorite character of all time. Is there a particular oh, yes. reason as, as to why? Huh, who told you that? Bro, I do my research, man. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, what was your question again? That caught me off guard. Okay. Uh, so Mario is your favorite character of all time, right? So mm -hmm. what? why is he your favorite character of all time? Mm. From very early, that was one of the first games that I came into contact with. Um, she isn't really my grandmother, but um, my cousin's grandmother, she used to live right beside me when I was growing up, and she introduced me to like all the Super Mario games, like the ones on the Super Nintendo even back to like the regular, the regular Nintendo. Yep. And um, I would, I remember just going over her house and just not wanting to leave. I would sit in the room and I would like play for like three hours straight and she would actually play with me. And she was like way better than I was. <laughs> and then the Super Nintendo and everything, she got that. And then I moved up to like Yoshi's Island and stuff and Super Mario 3. Um, I think they had, they ported that to the Super Nintendo as well. I yeah. don't remember. But um. Early exposure of that 
was what really got me into like games in general and um super mario and then you know smash brothers loved the game played it in college a lot and um mario mario just became like my favorite character of all time just because he was a very versatile fighter so and then my favorite mario game super mario sunshine on the gamecube nice because i remember so, yeah. you, you so is that still your best even after odyssey because i know initially when odyssey was revealed you were about you're a bit skeptical about it mm-hmm. skeptical just because like it was like cartoonish mixed with realism which was yeah. kind of weird for me but um i actually haven't played odyssey i don't own a single nintendo console after the nintendo ds and that is because i started to get into pc gaming yeah well that makes um, sense yeah, so got my like dream rig when I first moved over to California, saved up the money. And then I just bought like a decked out PC at the time. And I just loved it so much. But um yeah, I just kinda like watch Super Nintendo, not Super Nintendo, but just like Nintendo stuff on YouTube and everything just to kind of keep up. Mm. But um haven't bought the the console yet. <laughs> you're one of the few considering how much it's sold um are you gonna are you gonna watch the super mario film then you know for the go for the culture i will um what does that mean for the culture? <laughs> <laughs> typically um games go to movies and they flop right because okay. they they change the identity of the character and they pick an actor that doesn't embody the character. I agree. And so for me, it's kind of like a disrespect to the character to be like, this is what the community loves. This is what they have known for years. This is who they fell in love with. Forget that. Let's give you a completely different character. <laughs> yeah, well, that's and right. So- that's what they often do. So yeah, I fully agree. Yeah. But the trailer looked pretty good. Like yeah. I, it looks pretty exciting. So I'm Hopefully everything turns out well. I am gonna go watch it, and when I say for the culture, I'm just gonna say, "Hey, I love Mario." It's more on the cartoon side, so there's a little bit more leeway with, um, you know, the game adaptation. Yeah, I think they made the right call by doing that. Actually, I think that would be a lot harder to pull off in live action. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, (laughs) I'll watch it. I'll watch it. Yeah. So are you are you going to watch the Last of Us series as well? Because that's that's a bit you you'd have a bit more mm-hmm. of an attachment to that for obvious reasons. Yeah, part of me wants to watch it. Part of me doesn't. For the same reasons. For the same reasons. Yeah, it's like the um I think Uncharted just got the um the adaptation to the movie right with um one of the popular actors out right now. For um, his name is slipped in my mind. Are you talking about Tom Holland? Tom Holland, yes. Yeah. Um, like already Tom Holland is a lot younger than Drake in the game and he sports a different personality from Drake in general. So I like Drake from the game, not Tom Holland's adaptation from what I've seen in the trailers. That doesn't really appeal to me. Right. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, sure. I'm glad that they made it, but they're appealing to the more general audience of what's what's popular right now rather than the video game audience of what we know Hmm. if that makes that makes sense yeah yeah it does make sense Mm. are you keeping up to date with everything that's happening with ai i mean there's all these new ai tools i was just jamming with um chat gbt a couple of days ago there's Mm -hmm. a couple there's art stuff and there's like some video stuff now um is that all worrying for you because i know with chat gbt you can write it can teach you code and can do coding problems for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still in its infancy, but this is poten- uh, potentially threatening to people that do this for a living. Yeah. With like AI art, that is very threatening to the art community. And I think there needs to be some type of standard that goes along with that, like some tagline yeah. or something that you have to put on top of your art to say, hey, this is AI generated. Because, like, you can make AI-generated stuff in, like, 10 seconds. Yeah. It looks pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't agree with, you know, them wanting to outright ban it because it is a tool. So you still can't get that love and that culture and the craft that, you know, somebody who studied their art style 
um, for years is going to put into it, you know? Yeah. And how could so, you ban it anyway? Because like you may be able to ban it in one country, but then if another country doesn't ban it and they're mm-hmm. still able to use it, then that gives them leverage over the country that banned it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I would say is that it's not going anywhere. We're just going to have to adapt to it because at the end of the day, it's a tool. Yeah. And I think that it's going to find its niche after a while. But for right now, it's the new hip thing. A lot of people are using it. People who are not really art inclined are using it to make concept art, um, you know, to fuel their documentation, their pitches, their game design concepts or whatever concepts. And so it's very successful on that front. But as far as like competing with an actual person that's going to, you know, maybe look into like the culture of whatever they're making, the craft have the little nuances that might be overlooked by AI generated art and everything. I think there's like two different areas of that, but for right now, they're kind of blending together because AI generation is new, but I think over time that's going to get regulated um, to like one specific area of the design or creative field rather than, you know, taking people's jobs and everything. Cause that is a concern. Yeah. Well, I would think, you're better to become a jack of all trades in that case than a master of one because if ai makes your very specific skill set obsolete then you're kind of mm-hmm. screwed aren't you uh it, it, i think it depends on what the project calls for so let's say you know me and you we make a game um are you are you art inclined can you make concept art i wouldn't i wouldn't well no not really i'd say photoshop i can do some stuff but that's about as far as it goes gotcha <laughs> but we'll, we, can, we can roll with that we'll roll with that anyway okay let's just say i'm a concept artist yeah okay nice so let's say you're a concept artist you have a certain vision for the game and i'm like yo we should get into this ai art generation we can make concept a lot faster it's like okay well you know we done the ai generation we made some cool stuff it visually looks cool but the real inspiration comes from the research, the history that you're gonna do, your type of style that you put into your concept art that you're making that's going to fuel our inspiration for the game. So I think it's really easy to type in some words, AI generate some concept art and be like, hey, Reese, this looks damn good, we should do this. But that's not really inspiring because there's no investment in that image except typing a few words. So it's like a, a temporary high, sort of speak, of like, look at this cool thing. But after a while, it's like, okay, well, you start to take that for granted. You don't really care about it that much because you didn't work towards that concept art. So if I made something in 10 seconds with AI generation and you're like, Tyvik, I've been working on this for, you know, a week straight. What do you think about this? I would probably love that more, even if it isn't to the fidelity of that, because it came from a place of inspiration from you, because it's coming from your knowledge, the research that you did, and the techniques that you looked up to make that concept art piece. And I think that's kind of like the the split between what's going to happen with AI um, generation is that you're going to have that group that's going to have the quick fix to make whatever they need to quickly for the smaller teams. Um, but when it comes to like AAA, you're going to need people to do research, put in the extra work to actually make things that actually are cohesive with the world that you're creating. So I think there's going to be like a split between that. And people are going to realize that after AI has been out for longer than this, but it's, it's not going away. It's not. Yeah, well, there, there's always two types of people. There's the traditionalists that try and keep everything the same as it was. And there's the people that are always trying to make the quantum leap and move forward. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. obviously there can be a bit of a, a debate there. Yeah. It's usually, usually so, the cycle, every single time. It's the same thing with mm-hmm. social media and it's here yeah. to stay. Yeah, and they say if you can't beat it, join it. So um, if you are a concept designer, you can use the AI generation to take your concept art to the next level to stay, you know, with the curve, stay with the wave, even though you don't want to. But if that's what people are doing, you can do the same as well and capitalize off of that by learning how to use it effectively to just boost your concept skills in general. Hmm. But you have to get over that mental hurdle of like, hey, this sucks. This is doing this is taking like all these images, putting them together and making like good artwork in 10 seconds. It's like, okay, well, how can I utilize that tool to make myself a better candidate in the long run? So learn how to use it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't 
you know, rejected or anything. Don't be one of those people that are just so stagnant that you're just going to be like, no, I don't want to mess with it. It should be banned. Learn how to use it. Be around your enemy for a little bit to learn their tactics. Nice. And then come up off of it. That's that's what I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good approach. <laughs> As you said, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how does someone in your position, right? I mean, you, you work these long hours uh, mm-hmm. at work. You got to try and find time to play games. And plus, you got to try and stay up with technology as well. Mm-hmm. So how do you utilize your time to try and do all this stuff without getting overwhelmed by it all? Got you. I don't think it's possible not to. <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> you your just... honesty. <laughs> <laughs> There's simply not enough time in the day to stay up to date yeah. and then execute at the level that you need to to do what you want to. Um, so I'd say what I typically do is pick the points that I'm interested in and try to invest into those and know that I'm going to be lacking in other areas. Because let's say the typical day for me in like the perfect world is getting up at 4 a.m. I have a little bit of chill time. At five o'clock, I start getting ready for the gym. I'm in whoa, the gym at whoa, like six. Hold up, hold up. You have chill time at 4 a.m. in the morning? Yeah, like the wake up cycle. Oh, you okay, know, all right. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, plan my day, see what I'm going to do. You know, check my notebook to make sure everything is on course. And then, you know, five o'clock, you're ready for the gym. Um, Go to the gym at like 5.45, 6 o'clock, work out for an hour. And then like around 7.30, after I'm, you know, back, I'm dressed and everything. You know, maybe I have time to work on a side project, work on, you know, one of the games that I'm working on in my free time, work at 10 o'clock, work that job until seven o'clock. And then after that, you know, eat, take care of what I need to do. And then by that point, I'm exhausted. I'm pretty much running off of pure caffeine and pre-workout. And so, (laughs) so that's pretty much like the day. So in, in like break periods, so lunchtime during work i can look up some stuff online learn about it during that two-hour window where i have in the morning i can learn about stuff or work on stuff and then after work you know i eat and then i can look into stuff as well but um it just depends on where you want to place your time and i place my time in the gym that's very important to me so that takes out you know quite a chunk of my time in the morning yeah, but I suppose that that can help in a way because it helps keep your cognitive functions alert, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. just before this meeting, I, I just got in a quick gym session so I can be like pumped up for this interview. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Ran out to the gym right quick, got a good 30-minute workout in. And, I suppose you know, you're not wearing off. a singlet then with all the – so you're, you're jacked and pumped. Yeah, I didn't know if that was appropriate for the interview, so oh, I put a t-shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, just all in all, like some weeks I'll be like, I want to study this one particular thing, game design philosophy. I'll watch some TED Talks. um, Or, you know, I'll even ask like my lead or, you know, people in the company, like, how did you go about this? So it's like always a thirst for knowledge, asking people what they're interested in and how they got to certain outcomes is always very important in the game design field, kind of like as a mentorship. Um, so that's where I place my importance at is making sure that I'm able to learn from the people around me. If I'm not able to learn from the people around me, then I'm in the wrong spot. Hmm. And for the people that, you know, don't have as much experience as me, then I get to, you know, check my knowledge and teach that to the people around me as well to make sure everything that I'm saying is updated and is correct and that they're getting the right information to help them in their journey. Mm. Did you have uh, much interaction with Neil Druckmann when you were at Naughty Dog? I gave him a couple of head nods while I was there, passing in the hallway. Re- re- oh, just, just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just head nods. Because <laughs> when That's when it. you're the head of the studio like that, you know, idle chit chat and everything. Like maybe he's walking. He's been you know doing stuff for the the last four hours. I don't want to be that guy that's like, hey, you know, you know, fangirl, 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 um, you know, can I have your autograph, stuff like that. So, you know, I just gave him a head nod, kept it moving, understand that he's a busy man and um, kept it at that. That must be pretty difficult to do, particularly if you want to pick pick his brain, which I'd imagine someone of, of your caliber would want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It depends. But even though Naughty Dog was very flat, there is kind of like a hierarchy of how you view people. So I'm very, I try to be very aware of what people's going through because I know that stress is a real thing. Um, so, you know, when you're managing a whole studio, stress is probably high. So I don't want to be the person that's going to like, you know, push him over the edge. So if he's having body language, that's like, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. You're walking, you're fast walking, you're walking with your head down. You're not being inviting. Then I'll pick up on that and I'll just, you know, give him a head nod. But if, you know, he was cordial and he was looking at me and he was open for a conversation, then I'd be able to notice that, you know, then pick his brain. But there's a time and a place and you have to really pay attention to somebody to see if they're open to talking because it's pretty, it's pretty easy to tell if somebody's wanting to talk at the moment if you really pay attention to the body language so that's what i try to do yeah but aren't some people more extroverted or introverted than others <laughs> they are yeah um, so like they might they might be introverted but then if you speak to them then they might open up because some people can appear naturally guarded but that that doesn't mean that they actually are guarded if that makes mm -hmm. sense yeah it Particularly Just, if you want to pick, pick their brain for information or some sort of design mechanic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it also depends on the setting. Like if he was in the kitchen and then he was just chilling, okay, yes, then I'll go up. But like passing right. in the hallway is kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a weird spot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So head nod. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. the number one tip from Tyvek. Head nod in the hallway with someone of high importance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stick to the kitchen for any. Yeah. 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 Would you would you do that though? Would you go into the kitchen and see if anybody's there just so you had an excuse to maybe find them there so you could talk? <laughs> I would actually reach out to people on the communication um the communication app that we were using. I think we were using um Skype at the time. But mm. I would be like, yo, I have a question about this and that. And you know, can I pick your brain? And they were like, yeah, sure. Like, ask me anytime. Or people in the lunch the lunchroom, I would be like, hey, you know, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a sound designer. And I was like, oh, you know, I was wondering about like some sound stuff. And then they would say, yo, if you ever need my help, ask me, like ping me. And I'd be like, yo. So like generally my experience was like people are willing to help and talk to you if you just ask. Hmm. Don't you make hip hop beats as well? I do not. I have dabbled in like Fruity Loops and, you know, uh, the other sound, the sound tool, but only for a little bit. It was like a little bit after college where I was like, yo, I want to learn how to just do this just so I can talk in the sound designer's lingo. But I didn't like pursue that as something that I want to do. Right. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe in the future. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you know the lingo, I suppose then you can speak to mm -hmm. the sound designers or the or the composers if they're in the mm -hmm. building. Because um, yeah. I'd imagine everybody's sectioned off. So you'd have like animators in one section, artists in one section. Is that how it works usually? Or is everybody just all, <laughs> is it just one massive open office? It depends on the studio. Right. But typically you're around the people that you're going to be working with. Mm. But you may have like a random animator in your same like pod and so there's like clumps of people that do the same thing and then people who are around them that do totally different things so that's how it kind of works which is great because if you're so much into your own craft you start to get a little bit too close to it and you can't really see the positives or the negatives and so i was able to let's say i was working around the design pod you know software engineers were like two steps away the animation squad was like two steps away. And so I would be able to be like, yo, can you come check this out? And the animator is going to have a different perspective than the software engineer. And the software engineer is going to have a different perspective than if I ask somebody in QA who's also like two, three steps away from my desk. So that's how it was. And so you get like a lot of creative ideas from people just because they see things at different angles that you didn't consider. Makes sense. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you worked on the multiplayer, which has now mm -hmm. become a standalone project. So yes. I imagine, well, I'm guessing it probably would have changed since the time that you worked on it. So is a part of you hoping that the stuff that you did for it still appears in the game? 
Oh, of course, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're very proud of it. I'll have to. I'll have to. Um, once it's out, you'll have to tell me the stuff that you worked on because you obviously you can't you can't say anything yet. I suppose. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, yeah. I sure will. Yeah. Yeah. I, there were a lot of like base foundation stuff that I did do while I was there, so I hope that is still there by the time they release it. Has that been of a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster for you? Because you know it was cancelled, then it was supposed to be released, then it's become a standalone. Now it seems to have changed a lot. So were you like, oh, all my stuff's been canned, and then it is there, and then it's not there? Oh yeah, when I was when I was on the QA team, <laughs> I went from like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you know we're gonna be getting like another multiplayer mode and everything for the second went to like, what what do you mean we're not releasing a multiplayer <laughs> mode with the next game? Like, what are you talking about? I was like, the people want this. I want this. I've been waiting for so many years for some new multiplayer content, and you mean that it's gonna be delayed? I don't like this at all. That, that's the wrong move. <laughs> so I went through like the five stages of not denial and everything. And, um, you know, I kind of came to grips with it because, you know, they wanted to do like different things and, you know, bigger things. And I was like, okay, I understand that. But at the same time, I was like, we've been, the community has been waiting for so long for something new that you kind of miss that point to keep the like interaction of your community going. Because after a while, if you don't have any, you know, new updates or new gameplay, then people are just going to slowly trickle off and you're going to lose your audience over time just because you haven't updated that audience with anything new. So I really wish that something was released with The Last of Us Part 2. Um, but still, I'm going to play it either way when it comes out. Because I think like Factions is like one of the, the all-time best multiplayer games for me specifically um me and you know jack burroughs used to play that in college like religiously after our after our like college classes and everything so it's pretty it's pretty near and dear to my heart so i hope whatever they're making is out soon yeah but you raise a good point i mean and also in regards to time because every <laughs> game is competing for someone's time and particularly with multiplayers and and shooters uh, you're competing against other people that have games that are shooters and multiplayer as well, right? So you have to stand out. And yeah. that pressure is just rising because it's not like games are dropping off. There seems to be more and more games coming out every year and more stuff that's occupying people's time. So you have to be yeah. you have to be king of your craft. Yeah. Even if it was just something to like tie the community over, that would have been better than absolutely nothing. Because I think after I got there and was, you know, went through my five stages of denial, I think I heard that they actually made like factions for The Last of Us Part One in like four months. Wow. I think that's what I heard. Now, don't quote me on that, but I think that's like how fast they actually put that together. That's crazy if that's if true. You, yeah. And if you think about that, then like give me something else for The Last of Us Part Two. Like if. <laughs> It was that fast to put together. <laughs> so, <laughs> but because the people who are actually designing the game, sometimes they wouldn't be in the know with the people who are making the higher up decisions, like the business side of it, right? I mean, have you actually been privy to any of that information and understanding why business people or the management make decisions that they do? Because it seems like there's there's obviously a massive disconnect between gamers and actual game developers right I, I think most gamers have no idea what game developers go through but i'm wondering if there's a bit of a disconnect as well between the game developers and the actual management side gotcha naughty dog specifically it depends on the company yeah, yeah so naughty sure. dog specifically um you know they're very very trusted by sony to deliver great products so there's not a lot of overhead that sony has over naughty dog in general um, you know, also don't quote me on that. I don't want to speak for, you know, Naughty Dog specifically. I'm not their spokesperson. But um, from what I kind of went through, it was more so like the developers thinking about what the benefit of, you know, holding off was, what they kind of wanted to pursue um, was. So it wasn't really 
of course, like higher ups do have a decision in what they're making, but I don't think it was the higher ups decision entirely to be like, hey, we want to push this towards some other direction or some other, you know, we don't want to try something else, something new, something different, um, whatever that may be. <clears throat> but if you go to like, you know, Call of Duty Warzone, then you have the then you do have the hierarchy structure where you have the producers, the creative directors, and the higher ups, Activision, wanting to make this specific type of contracts with them. Um, you know, like we did, like Rambo um, for Warzone at a certain point. <clears throat> so you have those decisions being made at a higher level, and all of the higher ups want one specific thing. Then the development team wants a very specific thing, and then the player base wants a very specific thing out of the game. So you have three different avenues of people wanting or thinking they know what they want. And it can be a, a lot to decide what the community actually wants, what type of opportunities the higher ups can present to the developers so that they can make content that the community wants. Um, so it's kind of like, it's a weird struggle of just figuring out what the community wants and actually doing that, but also being progressive about what you are creating as a designer. So it's it's very hard to juggle because you're working with people to get them to a point to where they can all agree on. And sometimes it's not always the easiest process. I don't think that ever happens, does it? Where everyone's in unison in regards to that? No one is ever in unison, but typically, hey, if you get handed a task, the designers have the agency to build it in a way that is fun for them. So let's say upper management tells you to make a, a Coliseum game where you can put, you know, people 2v2 against each other. That's all they want. And they want you to include like big monsters. Okay, as a designer, you have the agency over what that looks like. You know, you want, you know, it wants to be 2v2, you know, they want to include big monsters. Okay, now as designers, maybe we don't like this idea, but how can we make something that we all enjoy that we that the community will enjoy as well? So it's really not about being in love with what you're making, because most of the time you're not really going to be in love with what you're making, but you can actually make something that you end up loving because you found a way to spin it in a way where it's fun for you, for the community, and for you know the developers who actually test it. By the time you're finished making a game, though, are you over it? You're just like, oh, I'm done with this game. I don't even want oh. to touch it anymore. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for Warzone specifically, the stuff that I made for seasonal content, I was like so in it, like so in the trenches of like the code, the performance. Okay, fire's over here. Let me grab my extinguisher. Okay, these people need updates on information. Let me get that to them. Okay, back to my own stuff. And that causes burnout. Um, especially in Call of Duty where you're working on tight deadlines. And so um, at a certain point, you're like, okay, I'm done with this. I can't wait to get this done. It's just two more weeks. Let me just get through this bullshit right quick, and then it's going to be done. We're going to make it the best that we can. It's almost done, I promise. Um, <laughs> so it does get like that. Um, and it did get like that at Naughty Dog as well. Um, quality assurance you have to play the game so many times. At the end of it, when the game was finally released, I was like, I don't even want to look at anything remotely, The Last of Us Part Two. Don't yeah. even put it in my face. I don't want to look at it. <laughs> I'm over it. And so how long is the, the, the morning period, I suppose, before you're like, okay, you know, before, you know, what? it's like a breakup in a relationship, right? By the time you're finished, you're like, I'm done with this thing. But then, you know, uh, you want it, you rekindle with it later on, you know? Don't I you? Don't, or, or does that never happen? It, you're just, you're just like, nah, I'm not, not keen on, on this. It depends on which type of person that you are. So um, I'm the type of person that loves the process of making things. And then, of course, you're supposed to like the results or the outcomes of making a good product. And you want to sit back and enjoy what you made with the team when you know blood sweat and tears went into this but you kind of get burnt out of burnt burnt out of seeing the same thing day after day after day so if you're making like an environment piece in the game you're like 
I'm so sick of looking at snow. I'm so sick of looking at these wood pieces, these trees, and you kind of become numb to what you're looking at. So you can't really appreciate it as if you had fresh eyes. Yeah. So some people, they rewatch movies. Yeah, that's how I would kind of relate it. If you watch a movie, I'm kind of like a one and done. I've watched it. I've experienced it. I'm not going to get the same experience the second time through. I'm not. So I'm not going to watch the movie again. Some people are like, yo, I love this movie. I get something from it every single time I play it. You know, I've watched it like seven times and it only gets better every single time. So I think those are like the two people that you have when it comes to like playing playing their baby once it comes out. Yeah, yeah. Me, I'm one of those people where like I, I played it enough during development and I can't experience it with fresh eyes, with, you know, awe and wonder. Because I've seen the negatives, I've seen the bad parts, I've seen the ups, I've seen the downs. I know what goes into it. And so it's like you're kind of like stripping away the magic of how all of that came together. And you know the magic trick. So it's not as impressive to you once it does come out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly with The Last of Us too, because the attention to detail is second to none. Not just oh, in the phenomenal. Yeah, not just in the graphics department, but the mechanics. <clears throat> You know, every aspect of the game, the AI as well, like, uh, I mean, I don't know what the process is. I mean, is that stuff sort of done right near the end where it's where you kind of go back and then you really fine tune things? Yes. Yeah. So there is a, there's a cutoff point during development where it's pretty much bugs only. There is going to be nothing new going into the game. Don't try to sneak anything in unless it's critical. And then for like the last couple of months, it's just like bugs, bugs, and more bugs and play test. And it is the most gruesome part of development by far. Um, but that's where the polish comes in at. That's where the stable gameplay comes in at. That's where you can, okay, the base game is created. For the art, you can polish whatever asset you're working on. For the animations, you can add in little tweaks here and there to make it really come together. And for a QA, that's a time where you really have to fine tune and look at bugs and you know notice the animations and the lighting and everything to make that Naughty Dog polish is what they call it, actually, you know, seeable in the game once it comes out. <clears throat> so. Mm. I would say with Naughty Dog, they make a very big push to get stuff done ahead of schedule. So they do have that time to focus on the smaller details later on in the game. Yeah. And that's where that polish comes from. Makes sense. But I suppose you end up doing crazy hours at the end, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the wouldn't at some point you kind of just go blank or you're not even... Particularly if you're not getting sleep, then you'd start to see spots on the screen and maybe the quality of your work would deteriorate because you haven't taken that time to rest. Mm -hmm. There's a balance, but just by proxy, you being in front of the screen at your work desk for 15 hours, instead of going home, getting rest and coming back, you're still in front of your desk for 15 hours. So at that point, you're still putting in a lot more time. You have a lot more eyes on whatever whatever it is you're looking at. So you're more apt to find, you know, more bugs, more things that you can update. And then, you know, coffee, caffeine, <laughs> five-hour energy shots, those things um, depleted rapidly out, out of the machine <laughs> in the cafeteria <laughs> during that time. So you're at pushing your body to the absolute limits to you know get that type of polish onto the game do some offices do some offices uh have little sleeping areas where you can go take a nap for like an hour or two and then go back to your desk because that studios would, yeah because that would <laughs> that would make sense to me you know if you're tired mm -hmm. then you just take a quick little nap and that way you're not going back and forth between the studio and home mm -hmm. and then you can just stay at your desk and do more work some studios have that naughty dog i don't think had that because if you're doing that you're encouraging people to kind of stay at the office and that's not really what you want because people need right. breaks people have families a lot of people have you know families in this career field like very early on like some mm. people i'll be some people i've talked to they're like you know 22 and they have you know 
you know, a wife and kids. And I'm just like, wow, that's awesome. Um, but um, they video games, the industry in general, typically try to support you taking care of your needs outside of work. And yeah. they don't try to really entice you to stay in the office for longer than needed. So at that point, it's pretty much up to the person whether or not they want to stay at the office or not. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Final, qu- final question before I wrap up. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a reason why I'm asking this, but have you seen the new Avatar film yet? I have not. Okay. All right. We, we may have to revisit this because I'm wondering how the visual effects, how that could have a domino effect on the video game industry in terms of the fidelity of graphics and how much further it can be pushed. Because mm-hmm. AAA development is getting more and more expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they gets to a point where there's a cutoff in terms of the reap of return. And I'm just wondering where that is. Probably say this is just my opinion, but I think we're already like plateauing of how high of fidelity we can go before it starts getting like absurd to the point where you have, you can have very, very high fidelity, but if people don't notice it, then is there any incentive to go that high fidelity? Well, yeah, because if you think of the jump between the PlayStation 2 and the PlayStation 3, right? That was massive. Mm -hmm. But even between PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, the it's it's getting to a point where it's getting incremental. It's it's not as wow as it was before, right? Yeah, we're very much getting diminishing returns. Yeah. So I think for right now, we've reached a fidelity level where it looks pretty great. It looks pretty good. Anything more than what we're making now is going to just be like a, a change in what technology can do for real time. So I know Unreal 5, they have like the Nanite system where you can put like high poly models in the game and don't have to worry about performance of creating like LOD, level of detail, um, texture maps or, you know, different models in the game that have lower vertices on them. You don't have to optimize because the engine just does it automatically. So I think at this point, like to your point, Avatar, you don't have to worry about real-time rendering at all. Yeah. You can make it the best that you want to, and then you can just press a button, and then it can render as beautiful as you want it. But when you come over to video games in real time, there's only a certain amount that you can do before it starts to put a lot of pressure on you know, the CPU, the GPU. Um, so there's a cap. So I think at a certain point, we are going to get to a point where it's just like, it's not going to be worth it to go any further than that. Because at that point, it's just like a passion project. You want to make this as good as it can, as it can be. But people, you know, do they have the TVs or the monitors or the equipment to actually support that level of detail that you're offering them? Yeah. And I In mean, a lot of the many, cases. How many bodies do you throw at a game as well? <laughs> And then if you start developing a game, I mean, it's getting to the point where you can spend six, seven years just developing one game. I mean, I don't know how long they've been working on GTA 6 and the Outer Scrolls and, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, if, if, if it takes you eight, nine years to, to make one game, then it's not really worth it. Unless, yeah. it, unless it does like GTA 5 numbers like day one or something. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, there probably will find a balance in the next couple of years it's like what what does the ps6 look like in terms of graphical fidelity is it going to be worth it or are we going to be with the ps5 for a longer period of time just because we're starting to plateau yeah well how long has the playstation 5 been out now quite a long time but it still hasn't isn't isn't that much stuff that's been released for it yet no and that's why they well, because they made the God of War Ragnarok, you know, PS4 compatible because yeah. PS5 is not readily available to anybody yet. Yeah. And it's just now getting to the spot where you can send it out to everybody because they have the components to do so. so. Yeah, yeah, because of the chip shortage. Yeah. 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 Well, hey, Tyvek, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out. I mean, you live a crazy life in terms of your, your work ethic and what you do day to day. You've got everything structured mm-hmm. and I very much admire it. But uh, if anyone wants to stay in contact with you or stay up to date with what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I mean, if you have a burning question, just like <laughs> message me on LinkedIn. 
um but people do message me quite often on linkedin in general yeah so um it's kind of hard to give back to everybody and you know have the have the time to respond back to everybody um, yeah yeah but and, um, uh, you have yeah, a cool gaming channel way. as well a little development uh channel on youtube so yeah if anybody has any any questions in regards to game development? That's a that's a good place to go. Yeah, come look me up. Just Tyvik Starworth is the the channel name. Yeah, just look me up. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe. All right. Thank you for having me on, Reese.